0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I always say I watch movies about marriage and I'm like, ooh, yeah, this reminds me of Dan, you know. Uh, <laughs> you but know. Like what
1: movie reminds you of your relationship oh,
0: Yeah, scenes Dan. from a marriage. No, oh, I, haven't, I haven't seen that, <laughs> actually. A marriage story? A marriage story, yeah. I I like, like, oh, am I Adam Driver? Or are you? Um, no, you're Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> okay, I'm, the, I'm the hero that uh, the audience likes.
1: This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC, about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Daniels are a filmmaker duo made up of, yes, two men named Daniel, Daniel Scheinert and Daniel Kwan, who also goes by Dan. They are the writers and directors of the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a very strange and moving film about the metaverse and generational trauma that also may be the first award season darling that has not one but a few dildo gags. The story follows Evelyn Wang, played by Michelle Yeoh, as she tries to save the world while being audited by an IRS agent played by Jamie Lee Curtis.
0: With nothing but a stack of receipts, I can trace the ups and downs of your
2: lives. And it does not look good. It does not look good.
1: Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert are both in their 30s. Kwan is 34, Scheinert is 35. And they've been working together since they were film students in their early 20s. Everything, everywhere, all at once has been a massive hit. And as we started our conversation, it seemed like they're still getting used to the crush of attention that it's brought the two of them. I know you all have done a lot of interviews together, but, um, you know, don't don't feel like you have to wait for me to turn the question to the other. Like, please feel free to just kind of add yeah. add on You're to gonna what the other You're going to regret that.
2: Oh, uh, because we talk way too much. Yeah, and, we have the opposite problem. You're going to be
0: like, "You already answered the question. You don't have to stop talking." Why are both Daniels <laughs> just keep going back
2: and forth? <laughs> but thank you for the invitation. Yeah.
1: Just talking with the Daniels, you immediately feel the way they collaborate, and I wanted to know more about this relationship. How it started and how it's developed. Dan Kwan grew up in Massachusetts. His parents met in Syracuse after immigrating from Hong Kong and Taipei. Daniel Scheinert is white, from Alabama, back several generations. Somehow, together, their taste and sense of humor combine to take their audiences to some very far-out places. Like, for instance... She appears to be in a universe where everyone has hot dogs instead of fingers. I mean,
0: it just doesn't matter.
1: The first question I have for you is, um, whose idea was hot dogs for fingers?
2: <laughs> I, I think it's Dan Quan. I don't know. I, I I think usually what happens is I I say things that I shouldn't say, and then before I can take it back, Shiner says, "Yes, that's good. Let's keep going with that." <laughs> yeah, and we,
0: we also like have been doing like weird body horror comedy sh- shorts for like twelve years, and so like yeah, a like, long time. You can basically like pick any body part, and we've made jokes about it in the past. But I do remember you pitching that to me and me being not convinced. <laughs> yeah, I think <mean>, you
2: should have <laughs> I, I was like, huh,
0: well, I will, you know, we'll hold on to that idea. We'll see. If, I don't know if I want to ask, you know, uh, f- famous actresses I admire to to do
1: that. <laughs> but look at us now. Daniel Scheinart and Dan Kwan first met in film school at Emerson College in Boston during the late 2000s. Scheinart was a year ahead of Kwan, and they had different creative ambitions and anxieties.
2: I went to film school and pretty quickly realized I wasn't director material. I was like, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I don't have leadership qualities. I don't have the confidence. I don't want to make other people work on my ideas. It didn't feel right to me, and I was very
1: uncomfortable with that. Did Did you, when you were discovering that about yourself, Dan, did that feel like a, like a failure? Like something you were ashamed of? Or something you just were clear kind of learning about yourself? Oh,
2: I mean, <laughs> That's such a great question because at the time, I don't think I could have put into words what I was feeling. But I I think shame is sort of uh, my default mode. I'm I'm working on it now. But especially back then, a lot of everything was framed through shame. So, of course, that was definitely framed through that as well. Um, But also, you know, because that was my default mode, I'm, I'm, I'm very flexible where I'm like, okay, you know what? This sucks, but I'm gonna I'll I'll pivot again as I always do, and so Uh. I thought I went into animation because I was like, okay, this is a way for me to create without having to feel all those burdens of directing that I was I I didn't feel right for, Um, and then that's when actually when I met Shiner, we met in an animation class, and uh, you know. In a lot of ways, I owe a lot to Shiner because he's the opposite. (laughs) Just confident as hell. Confident (laughs) to a fall. uh,
0: I mean, especially in film school, I think I had the attitude of like, I'm going to get my money's worth. Like I was like, holy crap, film school costs too much. And I was constantly doing the math in my head of like how like a two-hour class, how like that's hundreds of dollars. And like if the teacher would play a movie in class, I'd be like, this is absurd. I paid two hundred dollars so that Emerson College could show me Cloverfield. I've already seen Cloverfield, <laughs> um, so I was that kind of asshole.
1: Did you like? Um, did you think you were going to be friends? Like, do you have? It sounds like you have slightly different personalities or ways of presenting socially. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we had creativity crushes, but not friend-like material vibes. <laughs> uh, we were we were like very different, uh, and then we. Did become friends um, after I had graduated. I had a summer job at the this summer camp that teaches filmmaking to like middle and high schoolers. And mm. our job as film students was just supervise the kids while they make their movies. Mm. Um, it was the best
2: job ever. Oh, yeah. like, even so we, to this day. We it got is paid like so 20 fun. bucks
0: an hour just to like hang out with kids while they make their movies. Um, and so then I got Dan a job because uh, we had hung out a bit and then... I remember like our first day working together at that camp we kind of like suddenly we were like wait you're we actually have a lot in common cuz we both were just kind of re- like have camp counselor vibes and we were encouraging our kids to make increasingly insane short films uh I think, was it the first day that I almost, that was the same day that I almost got you fired? Uh, no. I almost got fired. You almost got yourself fired. And yeah. you almost
2: got all your kids sent home.
0: Yeah. Because <laughs> I was teaching them about sh- uh, long lenses and wide angle lenses, you know, that was the assignment. Um, like, uh-huh. And I was like, long lenses are great for hidden camera stuff like jackass uh, <laughs> because you can hide in the bushes with a long lens and no one can see the camera. Uh, so why don't we do that? And, uh, and then my kids <laughs> ran off and they told me they had just gotten some lettuce. And they some were gonna, salad. They were going to yeah. throw a salad on somebody while hiding in the bushes. And I was like, well, don't throw it on a student. Uh, throw it on my friend Dan. Uh but I didn't know they had filled the salad with
2: uh like beans, s- soda meat, beans, soda, beans, cheese, salad dressing. Like it was gross and then somehow somehow the soda actually digested some of the food so it actually was putrid it yeah it kind of like,
0: had vomit vibes exactly he was like did you throw vomit on me <laughs> yeah it was really confusing <laughs> uh, and so then my my kids got taken to the like camp heads and threatened to get kicked out and i i took the fall for it because it really was my fault And i, I went and explained yeah it. you
2: were the adult <laughs> it was,
0: was literally my job is to supervise and i was there like being like hey why don't you throw things at adults um but uh they just said, don't let it happen again, Daniel. And
2: luckily, I got to stay. But it, it was a, a very clarifying moment because I do think now looking back on it, it was actually really imp- informative for our process. Growing up, I was really active in the church. And every mm-hmm. single summer, there was this thing called VBS Vacation, Vacation Bible, Bible School. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are familiar. Um, and, you know, uh, from a pretty young age, I, I was very um, active in in being a part of that energy. Just um, you know, starting the morning warm ups and doing the songs with everyone, and, and and basically, I became like my church's MC or whatever. And. Uh, looking back on it now oh. I, I, I see you do my, have
1: leadership qualities Dan Kwan. exactly
2: but, so but like in I a classroom, didn't realize that at the time yeah. yeah
0: in like a classroom Dan's so shy and then like it's so weird it was so weird to see that switch turn and be like holy cow like he's like you know really controlling the group and the the energy and the vibes once this kind of but this is something this vibes. is
2: something that like me and shiner discovered slowly over the past you know twelve years is that uh as directors, we work much better, less as like um, dictators or you know the the, bo- the boss of the of the company. And and when we switch over to camp counselor energy, it's it's way more effective, way more fun, and it just plays to our strengths.
1: So they each liked a particular kind of community building, and they brought this to their work, even as their work styles and social instincts were very different. They consider this a matter of personality until just a few years ago when Dan Kwan realized his brain works differently because he has ADHD.
2: It was about five or six years ago, and the funny story is that uh, we were writing this movie Everything Everywhere all at once, and we thought that the main character was going to be incredibly um, distractible. We wanted this film to be about how impossible it is to to live in the current age without being distracted, without being present. Yeah. And so we thought, oh, maybe the main character could have ADHD. Um, and that's why she's able to jump between different universes. And, and we were like, well, we should probably do some research. We don't want to you know, portray this in the wrong way. Um, and then that night I was up until like four in the morning, just researching on my phone and, and basically taking all the, like the, the unofficial quizzes, like, do you have ADHD? All that stuff. And just crying. Cause I was, uh, you know, I, it, it was this beautiful moment where I realized why my life had been so hard um, for so mm. long and also why I think I have so much shame. And one of the things that uh, we talk about often within the ADHD community is how um, our motivation structures within our, our minds um, aren't working properly. And so we're constantly having to chase the dopamine, right? You're you're trying to ride that wave, looking for the thing that will keep you motivated, keep you engaged, um, not just with the activity you're doing, but with life in general. And so... That was a, a, a that diagnosis has been just huge for uh, me, as far as my self esteem and my self image and understanding, um, yeah, how to move through this world. And so, yeah this this movie, um, you know, was a kind of kind of saved my life a little bit.
1: You were doing character research and yes. then landed on something that felt true exactly. for you. Yeah. And one more question about this: when you described um, chasing the dopamine hits. For you is that related to chasing novelty? Like does it have to be new?
2: Um often yes. It's it's novelty is is definitely something that people with ADHD is, are chasing after, but for me a lot of the dopamine chasing is about discovering new things. And so whenever we start a new script, I, I go and find all the books I can and I, I read all, I listen to all the podcasts I can and, and I just I, I, I write little essays and I try to understand um, you know, first of all, why I'm so interested in it, but also how it, it can apply to our next script. And so there's that part of it, but then also the other half of it is like, what is fun? What is um, what is just pleasurable? There are very few things as fulfilling as as finishing a film with a bunch of friends, you know. And so things mm. like that um, keep you keep us motivated and keep us excited. Um, but then of course, you know, um, we we've also just built in a system of a lot of. Um, a lot of breaks from work you know like oftentimes now when we write we're just uh, skateboarding in my back alleyway and uh, like i think we're, we're starting to embrace this um f- this thing where work and play the line is is um kind of fuzzier
1: hmm. is the two of you skateboarding in the alleyway
2: yeah we're both so good no yeah. i'm taking <laughs> should I'm just, just picture so us bad. like
0: doing kick flips and yeah exactly quan yeah, can almost do an ollie uh,
2: <laughs> and uh, uh just, just for con- just for context though like <laughs> this this is all a part of like my post-diagnosis life most of my life I was so bad at everything because I was so distractible and I wouldn't I had no follow-through but I just because of that I was so afraid to start anything so I just didn't I, I just spent a decent chunk of my life not trying new things hmm. and now that I'm diagnosed and I understand that I'm probably going to Uh, fall out of love with a new hobby or whatever, you know, just knowing that eventually my brain is going to be like, you know what, I don't care about this anymore Uh, going into it knowing that it's going to end, I'm able to just embrace it for what it is, and so I I just started skating for the first time as an adult so I'm in my mid-30s and I just started doing it like a couple years ago and I'm really bad at it, but like it's that is growth, honestly me being okay with myself being bad at something is like, uh, that's, that's a new development for sure
1: finding these new ways of working together took some experimenting because over the years there have been some false starts like when they were trying to finish their first feature film called Swiss Army Man and they were really struggling
0: It was the hardest thing we'd ever done and we we were having this argument about like I thought it was too hard and I was like if you this thought
1: making this feature film was too hard and yeah. you, it, I was it, like it, it became not fun
0: if if every feature film is as hard as this, I don't want to do them anymore was kind of my mm-hmm. stance. And and mm-hmm. Kwan was more like, uh, we could do better. Let's make the next one better. I don't care if it's harder. We just have to do better, you know? Yeah. Um and I was so there's a there was a bit of an impasse there and and we gave each other the space and grace to <laughs> kind of uh to um experiment with the process, to do to do both and to try to make it better but also Try to make it um, behind the scenes better, not just on
1: screen better. Wait, how did you give each other that space and grace? Like you said that in a jokey way, but like that's hard if yeah. you're have very different ideas about. Sounds like.
2: I mean, one dang. thing. A lot of things. Often, it's just time. Totally. I think giving ourselves time to live and and not be impatient. I know this this industry needs to move so fast and wants you to move so fast. And I think one of the great things about both of us is neither of us, even though we love making films and that are successful, we're not chasing success. We're not chasing those things. We are we, we, we both have a, a very shared interest in just making things um yeah the things that we want and the things that we think will reflect the world back to mm-hmm. itself. And um, and so because of that we 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 have Time to give each other the space and grace and to develop, you know.
0: It was funny, like, uh, you know, back to that night when Dan was up all night in bed. uh, (laughs) That week we had been having some of the most intense disagreements about the edit on Swiss Army Man. We were, like, still editing. and, uh, And we had decided, like, let's get drinks. Um... Away from the computer and just talk about you know uh, process process and how we're doing and so like I kind of came in like with like okay my the things I want to complain about and uh, and Dan sat down I was like hey I think I'm a I think I'm a bad creative partner because I have ADHD and I'm undiagnosed and and it just like took the wind out of my sails I was like <laughs> I was like no way man what what does that mean and um I do think that is one of a hundred adjustments was just finding vocabulary for the for like the our process and being like, oh this is like part of what makes dan so creative and talented is also what makes him a little difficult to work unreliable <laughs> you know it's like oh he's capable of hyper focus and yeah. and a little less good at uh consistent focus and yes. like great i'll take it no notes like but mm-hmm. now we have a word for it that's less you know judgmental or angry and it's just like oh this is that, hey man, this is happening. You yeah, know?
2: That's, that's a very good example of of active grace, um, which is you know, I'm very appreciative of. But also, I'm appreciative that you did the work and figured
1: <laughs> it out.
0: You know, like the self reflection, f- right. you know, paid off for everybody. Um,
1: well, and that you got to like you were. It wasn't a conflict that you were just having by proxy by fighting over edit notes. You instead like figured out you needed to step away from the computer and have a conversation
0: yeah totally. where
1: you saw each other a little more clearly
0: i think i made that pretty apparent i was being a big baby and it like it was very obvious that like it wasn't about the thing on camera i was just like but i think i that is where my brain often goes is mm. it's as it it like telescopes out and goes like there's something bigger here the communication's bad right. yeah. it's not oh. about the color of the paint it's about the way you're talking about the color of the paint <laughs>
1: yeah. and and when you're a big baby what do you do what did that look like
0: um, I, I like uh, I kept leaving the edit a lot I would leave Dan and, and our editor alone and then like uh, and I, I I just stormed out one night I was like good luck I don't I don't want I, I, I don't want to be here uh, try stuff I don't I don't give a shit anymore um, one, one way I pitched it to Dan like one of the I get butt hurt when um, he'll be hard on our movie and not acknowledge that it's my movie too, you know? He'll oh, it
1: hurts your feelings. Yeah, uh-huh. so
0: like he'll frame it and he'll think he's being self-deprecating, but our lives are so intertwined that it's like, no, 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 you're being us-deprecating. Yeah, yeah and, yeah, and I'm standing over here, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know? Um,
1: <laughs> us-deprecating. Us-deprecating. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, how the surprise success of their film *Everything, Everywhere, All at Once* is changing both Daniels in real time.
0: Yeah, we're—I mean—we're still in the middle of so much of it. We could do part two interview next year and see if it went to our heads or if it drove <laughs> us
2: insane or how many cards you have. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll yeah. set a set a date. <laughs> we'll see you then.
1: Turn away from this conversation about movie making in Hollywood for a minute to let you know about a loss I'm absorbing in my life, because I could use your help. Earlier this week, my family said goodbye to our nearly 14 year old Australian shepherd, Jack. He was truly a very sweet boy, who was right there when I fell in love with Arthur, when we got married, when we first became parents, when we brought home our second baby. We moved a lot of places over those years, and he became home for us. So figuring out how to love him as he declined and got more disoriented and more stressed has been really hard. The question of when and how to end his life was an existential and logistical puzzle that made me well up with tears whenever I considered it over these last months and weeks. And then I'd cry again when I thought about how to bring in our little kids to this experience. And now, having watched him die, and noticing his absence, make my eyes well up for different reasons. I miss him. I'm sad he's only a memory now. Anyway, it's made death feel very close and unavoidable. And I'd like to hear your stories of saying goodbye to cherished pets. How did you do it? How did you avoid going out and picking up a new puppy immediately? Because that's my current phase of grief. Tell us about saying goodbye to a pet you've loved. You can record a voice memo. Tell us your pet's names, how you think back on his or her end, and how you've carried that intimate exposure to death forward. And send it to us at at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. I look forward to listening. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. As Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert have been working together, they've also made film projects separately and have been building their own families. Kwan is a father of a young son and is married to animator Kirsten Lepore, who happened to work on Marcel the Shell, another of our team's favorite movies of 2022. Scheinert has been with his partner, Stephanie, a Planned Parenthood organizer he met in college for more than a dozen years. But the two Daniels keep collaborating on film projects because of what their contrasting creative instincts spark together. One of them, Shiner, can be more of the world-weary skeptic, while Kwan is all about possibility and wild ideas.
2: I love everything. I'm like, this is awesome. This yeah. is great. And you're this such a beautiful. pushover. This you're like, oh, great. nice to meet you. And yeah. I'm like,
1: no, it's not.
0: You're part of the problem. You know, <laughs> like I, you know, I'm so reactionary right. sometimes.
2: But I, I yeah, I I think you know. Obviously, you can unpack a lot of different reasons why we we turned turned out this way. But it's it's a really um, you're a great therapist, by the way. Mm, am I? No, I'm talking to
0: her. <laughs> oh yeah, I was <laughs> gonna say. I was like, I was like, I don't think I'm a good therapist. No, yeah, don't release this. But this has been very good for us. <laughs> um,
1: I, I have I have when you said butt hurt, um, Daniel Shiner, it made me think about like. I, there's so much you're, – you're, this conversation has been so feelings forward and you both are uh, describing yourselves and each other with such awareness and self-awareness. And um, But when you said butt hurt, it reminded me that you're also two dudes. Um, mm. And I I, I What, wonder, girls don't like, say butt
2: hurt? <laughs>
1: I don't think as much. I think no, it's, it's more it's, like no, – They say boob uh, hurt. Oh, a,
2: right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Do they?
1: But um, <laughs> did you uh, – like – whether through talking about your work and the kind of work you wanted to make, or just talking about the kinds of the ways you expect to be treated by one another and want to treat each other, like have you had direct conversations about like masculinity, the kind of men you are? Mm.
0: Totally, um, mm. but I I do think we're funnily enough we're like kind of bad communicators about our personal lives. Um, we communicate with each other through creative ideas. Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. like it's like while pitching. We're learning things about ourselves, you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: We never really set out to say, hey, let's do something about masculinity. Like growing up, most of my friendships that really. Clicked were actually with other, were with women, and I I I had a hard time fitting in. In most male activities, did not do well with sports teams. Did not do well with um, a lot of that stuff. And and anytime I tried to imitate it, it it would feel really awful. And so I actually I kind of pushed back against it. I, I found uh, I got into the punk scene, the local emo mm-hmm. punk scene, and there's much more of like a a, a queer open uh, space in the punk world where people can dress at how they want and, and and I found that really exciting and beautiful and I yeah I I started, yeah I started to dress different most people um at my school you know, they actually thought I was gay, and I wasn't gay, and that was also a whole other thing. I was very confused, and I'm, I'm so grateful for all the queer thinkers and writers and activists who have decoupled um, sexuality and, and gender um, for us all, so that we have the language to understand ourselves better. Because, like at the time, I remember the, the phrase. Um, metrosexual was getting passed around and I was like ah maybe that am I metrosexual is that me uh-huh. and then like I, I tried it on for a week I was like hell no that's not like it's such a, obviously it's a problematic phrase now but at the time it, it was like ew this is that's not what I'm talking about but thanks for trying um, and and so yeah, I you know I, I wore a lot of girls' clothes I, I, and I you know paint my nails. My my mom was very you know being very traditional Chinese immigrant was afraid that I was gay and we grew up in the church. So there's it was a very complicated, strange thing that um, only now that I'm an adult and I have my own son, I'm I'm starting to really feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm really grateful, like again, for the language that the queer community has provided straight men like me because I do think that when the queer community is lifted up it actively helps cis straight men. And I don't think people see that enough. It's like we are trapped in all these boxes and we're just afraid to open the doors to let it all mix together.
1: As I was watching Everything Everywhere all at once, you know, it's so much about The necessity of critique and honestly looking at pain and absurdity and suffering and misunderstandings. But there's also a moment pretty early in the film where there's conversation about the decline of community and institutions and durable relationships. Our institutions are crumbling. Nobody trusts their neighbor anymore. And you stay up at night wondering to yourself. How can we get back? And the question is, how can we get back? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, like... Do you think of those questions as related? That on the one hand, you're interested in like blowing up labels. And on the other hand, you're like, what else is there that how do we maintain some kind of connective tissue? Oh,
2: my God. There's so much to unpack in this. Yeah.
0: I mean, (laughs) we always kind of made fun of that speech as like our version of a MAGA speech, you know, just like. Oh, interesting. This is the guy who's like, we got to get our institutions back or whatever. Uh, And I think we kind of. Made fun of it a bit, but tried to but tried to articulate the part of it that's somewhat relatable, that that is like understandable, that like our parents' generation is scared of change, and um, and and ultimately, I, I do think the whole movie was kind of like an exercise in us, you know, um, not just being the like label exploding, screaming millennials, but trying to connect with and learn from. The generation that came before us, and and empathize with, you know, the the good parts of you know the society that came before us, and but also like empathize with just how hard and beautiful and ch- but challenging it is to change your mind or to adjust or to move in
2: new directions. You know, um, yeah. there's one more quote I want to. To throw out there, but I don't remember who it's from, and I'm so sorry. Um, but probably me. Yes, yeah, you exactly. You're a <laughs> genius. I'm gonna quote <laughs> you right now. Yeah, um, it, I'm gonna paraphrase, but they basically said like society as a whole, we all need to believe that there is stability, but the artist's job is to remind himself or herself or themselves and the world that nothing in this world is stable. We can do better. We can be better. And in, in order to get there, we, we might have to, you know, break some eggs and, and feel some pain. And, and um, I, I, I think uh, that's, yeah, I think that's where we're at right now. I think we're all feeling a lot of pain.
1: I, I think that's a James Baldwin quote. I just looked it yes, up. Yes, thank um, you.
2: James Baldwin, mm. genius. A
1: society must assume that it is stable, but the artist must know, and he must let us know, that there is nothing stable under heaven.
2: Thank you. I love that you just could look that up. Yeah, he said it thank better. Thank technology. Exactly. Totally <laughs> uh, I
1: and how does that sit with you as a parent, Dan, that idea of, like, stability being a mirage? Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a beautiful and horrifying question. Um, <laughs> parenting has been just the hardest thing and the most, like, life-changing, paradigm-shifting thing for me, and um, and that's been really good for me Um the one thing that I'm realizing now looking back at my own childhood and looking at my my son now who is almost four is that um, one of the best gifts you can give to a child is – I don't want to say the illusion of stability, but this magic trick where you create – you manifest stability in a chaotic world. If you can give them that safe launching pad, they will be so uh, resilient and emotionally intelligent and capable of, of – uh, becoming stable, st- like stable for someone else, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, at no fault to my parents, you know, they did the best with what they could. I I grew up and I, I, I've become a very unstable human being. Um, and I look at people like Daniel and realize the reason why I am drawn to them and I need them in my life is because they grew up in, a, uh, in households that gave them that stability. And so... It's not – I'll say stability is not impossible, but it's also not a given. And, in fact, it has to be – it's something that has to be protected and fought for. And so as a parent, this is what I'm thinking about, and I'm doing a terrible job sometimes with my son. It's, like, so hard to break free from these things. And so, um, anyways, I'm just – I'm really grateful for the people around me who give me an example of what a a confident, stable (laughs) uh, existence can look like. And I want to be able to pay that forward to the people around me.
1: And Daniel Scheinert, is that is the way Dan described you, does that feel accurate inside yourself? Like, do you feel that sense of kind of, like, um, stable footing?
0: I think uh, so, sometimes, you know, making a project that's all about reflecting on these generation gaps has definitely kind of made me reflect on, like, some of the, like, Extremely lucky things I got out of you know my relationship with, with my family and what I learned from the generations before me. Only now as an adult am I kind of hearing like these stories about like, what my dad's childhood was, was like. Uh, I'm learning that like his childhood was pretty bonkers, and he was a completely different parent to me than he than my granddad was to him. And like seeing like just how huge of a deal that is. To be like, holy cow, that's not an easy thing to do, to to choose to be like, no, I'm going to be this kind of parent. And he like put his career was like kind of his second priority, maybe third, you know, like he had kids and was like, no, no, I'm going to be a dad. Took like a three-year sabbatical to just Hmm. be a dad for a while. He like, I don't want to shit talk my granddad. He was great. I grew up loving him, but like now I'm just hearing these stories and being like,
2: oh, wow, like my childhood was different.
1: He parented in a very different way.
2: Uh-huh. Especially in the 90s, every right. every 90s movie was about how dads were never there. <laughs> They're <Yeah>. at home. <laughs> and I'm
0: from the South. Like right. I'm like a third or fourth generation redneck and like on both sides it goes back into like some really desperate impoverished times and like yeah, some some really epic cycles got broken and I'm so lucky.
1: Mentioned earlier that um, when you talked about what your hopes are for the the things you make together, that that um, financial success or, or success at the box office hasn't been the thing that you've articulated as your mission. Like, what is it? What is it? How have you committed to each other about what you're trying to do with what you're making?
2: Mm.
0: I have this spiel I sometimes go on that, like, you know, as a as a young person, certain filmmakers inspired me. Um, but then i would realize like some of them only make one good movie and and i was like or they burn out and they disappear and and i was like well then that doesn't seem like a career that i want uh actually want to have a career and and so then I was like, oh, who who makes lots of good things? Those are the people I should look up to. And then you start hearing that a lot of filmmakers are assholes. And I was like, okay, who uh, makes has a whole career making lots of movies and they're not mean um, and they're good family people. And then I realized even those people are like absentee parents. And yeah. like Dan and I love like. Uh, Kids and like being parents has always been super important to both of us. So then we were like, okay, what we're looking for is a sustained career where we're not mean, the content's pretty good, and uh, we're also not absentee, terrible partners and parents. You know, like Mm -hmm. um, we're scared of burning out, we're scared of being turning into people we don't admire or want to be more than we're focused on um, the money, the awards, the celebrities, you know. Uh, but yeah. like right now we're getting all of it. I know, <laughs> I know. It's the, that's the wild. Thing. <laughs> Except we're becoming assholes. Yeah, um, exactly. This that's, has all been a front. Um, like I think we're lucky that um, we weren't overnight successes. That we've had twelve years to kind of like find collaborators and and find these these people in our lives that kind of keep us in check. Um, and we're going to need that okay. uh, in the in the coming months. Um, I think there's there's definitely a part of us that, I mean, we definitely didn't expect to be talking um, that the promotion tour this spring would just segue into more promotion and into award season. And that, like, I feel like right now we're becoming like these like public figures, you know, like doing all the, doing things like this podcast and be like, this is this is barely even about the movie. This is just about us. Like, who cares? But, uh, but I
1: care. It's been a really good conversation. <laughs> I think, but
2: thank you. I, thank I learned you. a lot. And, and yeah, I think, don't, don't be us deprecating, okay? <laughs> well, she cares. <laughs>
1: That was filmmakers Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Their movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is now available to stream. And there's also a link in our show notes to their first big breakthrough, the music video they directed for the song Turn Down for What. It's definitely worth a watch if you haven't ever seen it. And it includes some hot dance moves from Dan Kwan. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Affie Yellow Duke and Andrew Dunn. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. And special thanks to Lily Clark for her help with this episode and for taking the fun photos of the Daniels in our studio. You can see them on our Instagram at DeathSexMoney. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thank you to Lynn Meissner in Chicago, Illinois, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Lynn and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. One other way the Daniels bring camp counselor energy to their projects is how they treat their filmmaking crew. Like, for everything, everywhere, all at once, they reversed the regular order of the credits and put the names of production assistants at the very top.
0: We were like, oh, that sounds fun, and we looked into it, and there's no, like, union requirement. So, like, the the end scroll of our movie, like, we put the PAs up there, and uh, someone came up to me after a screening a few weeks ago and started crying because it meant so much to her. And she was like, I came up as a PA, and I I saw the names come up in credits, and she, like, cried then and then cried again talking about it.